Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 85, Risks and Rewards. Having not flinched in the face of gunfire in Cuba, Winston returned home to spend six idle months, the only idle time in his life, to his recollection, before heading to India. He and another hundred officers sailed out on September the 11th, 1896. Leaving behind his mother, mounting debts, and a bounced check, Winston left Jenny to handle the last two as best she could. And handle them and her own debts, she did. Jenny borrowed money, used her life insurance as collateral to borrow 17,000 pounds, and, undertaking something seen on TV all the time now, she took over houses, redecorated them, and then sold them for a profit. Still, she was down to 900 pounds a year and had to turn to friends to make ends meet. Churchill was not happy at the prospect of spending the next nine years in India. He would be far removed from where he needed to be to make an impact, to run for office. And the ship he was aboard, the SS Britannia, was heading away from the most convenient conflict in the area at the time. Crete. For now, as an experienced journalist, he could make money and a name for himself by covering that building conflict between Greece and Turkey. But the SS Britannia, having left Southampton, was on its 23-day journey, carrying the dispirited Winston, who spent his time playing chess and decided he might as well spend the next nine years improving his game. That seemed to be the highest expectation he could have from this posting. But destiny was to choose something altogether different for the young man. The British Raj, as Britain's control over India was called, was at its peak in 1896. Forty years earlier, after the Great Mutiny, came the transfer of power from the Honorable East India Company to the British Crown. In Winston's time, India was made up of 602 states, which ranged in size from something like Kashmir to a plot of land only a few acres large. To those against the British rule over India, London could argue that India had never been a democracy, had never really been a complete country, and was always under the Rajas, which still ruled, but now they were under British rule. As for the subcontinent's infrastructure, the British had introduced railroads, irrigation, the newspaper, and the Western concept of the courts and justice. It's true that a British subject could strike a native without repercussions, but at least their hospitals held a more liberal view and treated black and white alike. Visiting Englishmen or other foreigners usually fell into two camps, upon seeing India. They either hated it from the outset and tried to recreate England 
or stay within English-dominated areas, or allowed the charm of the land to overtake them. Venturing out, the second group could see performing scorpions, snake charmers, ride an elephant, experience curry, and take in the indescribable smell that was India's alone. Of course, both groups called the locals wogs, or worthy oriental gentlemen, when they had to address someone. But of course, context is everything. And neither camp would think of allowing a wog to enter a Raj club. Inside, the men sitting down were white, and the men who were serving them were not. Reading material inside the club was from home. Punch, Country Life, The Times, and of course, the Queen's regulations. The rules of proper conduct were clear-cut, but the surrounding architecture was anything but. The mint was ionic, the town hall was Doric, but only on the outside. Within, all was Corinthian. The University Library and Clock Tower at Bombay was 14th century Gothic, sure signs of many years of different dominating cultures. The fourth hussars were soon at Bombay, but would continue moving until they reached Bangalore, their destination. The most notorious flawed piece of construction in India was Bombay's Sassoon Dock. It was completely useless as a disembarkation platform, so most, in the know, used a skiff instead. And Winston became one of its more famous victims. Here is what happened in his words. Quote, we came alongside a great stone wall with dripping steps and iron rings for handholds. The boat rose and fell four or five feet with the surges. I put out my hand and grasped a ring, but before I could get my feet on the steps, the boat swung away, giving my right shoulder a sharp and peculiar wrench. I scrambled up all right, making a few remarks of a general character, mostly beginning with the earlier letters of the alphabet hugged my shoulder, and soon thought no more about it." Unquote. But Winston would soon find that his life was changed forever because of the injury. Tennis was out of his life, and he couldn't play polo unless his right arm was strapped to his side, which forced the uninjured part of his arm and shoulder to swing the stick. Winston considered India, quote, a different planet, unquote, but was soon living life as he always had. For a very small fee, he hired a dressing boy, a butler, a groom for his ponies, and various bearers. To sum up, quote, princes could live no better than we, unquote. Once the fourth Asars finished their train ride, Bangalore came into view. The days were, of course, hot, but the nights were cool due to being 3,000 feet above sea level. As officers were given a lodging allowance, Winston, Barnes, and Baring pooled theirs and rented a giant bungalow. Just to give an idea of its size, it had two acres of surrounding gardens. With servants doing the unpacking, Winston was settled in and in no time writing to his mother. Quote, My writing table, at which I now am, is covered with photographs and memories of those in England. The house is full of you in every conceivable costume and style. My cigarette box that you brought me from Japan, my books, and the other lares and panates lie around, and I quite feel at home, though 6,000 miles away. Unquote. 
His days soon ran into a routine. A nudge would wake him before sunlight. A knowing hand would raise his chin and put a razor to his neck, and then proceed to shave his master. Morning parade started at 6 a.m. The men in their mounts would drill for an hour and a half. Then came the blessed bath, followed by breakfast. The subalterns were then free until 5 p.m., that is, until it was time for polo. Winston, refusing to give up his favorite sport, rode every chucker, or playing period, he could, with his upper right arm tied to his body. When the shadows grew long over the playing field, Polo was replaced by a second bath, and then dinner was at 8.30. Then the subalterns would talk and smoke until 11 p.m. Lights out. The routine was quickly established, and so was Winston's boredom. He simply wasn't cut out to be a regular officer. That's not to say he wasn't a keen soldier, but just like at school, he only excelled at things that interested him. Like a course on musketry, he was required to take, of which Winston came out at the top of his class. Then Cupid finally caught up to Winston on November 3, 1896. He had met a Miss Pamela Plowden, who was, quote, the most beautiful girl I have ever seen, unquote. They did the city of Hyderabad on the back of an elephant, all the while laughing gaily. There were no other white women that turned his head, and he found the Anglo-Indian women horrid. Miss Plowden would come and go out of Winston's life for the next few years. Taking advantage of his enormous garden, Winston collected butterflies, but then turned to roses after a rat destroyed his beautiful specimens. Soon he had over 50 different kinds of roses growing outside his bungalow. But all these were diversions. His real love remained polo, and this he shared with his fellow officers. Their enthusiasm grew, and they decided to break the tradition that held that no cavalry regiment from southern India had won the Indian Empire's regimental cup. This hubris was considered laughable by those in country. But the 4th Hussars had a plan. They pulled their resources and bought 25 Arabian ponies, supposedly for stud, but then challenged the 19th Hussars, all natives, for the Goncola Cup in Hyderabad. Winston and his merry men had been in country less than 50 days. Preposterous. The match began, and the 19th quickly scored three goals. But then Winston, the one-armed subaltern that brought the loudest laughs when they first rode out onto the field, led his team who then scored nine unanswered goals and won. This was a feat never copied or broken by a newly arrived regiment in India. According to his fellow officers, watching Winston play polo was to understand the man. His playing was almost lackadaisical, but all the while tactics and strategy were swirling around in his mind. But when he saw an opening, he lunged for it. The lunge was never graceful, but full of skill and passion. The entire person that is Winston was brought into focus, and seemingly by sheer willpower, he would score. But this is play, tense, drama-filled, even dangerous, but play nonetheless. And this part of Winston was soon to depart or be overshadowed by the adult Winston.
the man that had been sleeping within all along. But as it awoke, it took inventory of its strengths and weaknesses and realized there was work to be done. The man, the warrior, was emerging, but he did not have sufficient weapons at hand. Although not true of all geniuses, Winston, as the self-educated type, began to subconsciously realize his gaps of truly understanding himself and the larger world around him. A resolution for the former escaped him for now, but the latter was simply, if not easily, remedied. He read and read and continued to expand the range and number of books that fell under his eyes in the hot Indian afternoons. At this moment, knowledge interested Winston, and as we have seen, when something interested him, he pushed himself. And satisfying his thirst for knowledge led him to his first insight about himself. He loved words and what they could do in a certain form, or as he put it, he had, quote, a liking for words and for the fill of words fitting and falling into their places like pennies in the slot. I caught myself using a good many words, the meaning of which I could not define precisely. I admired these words, but was afraid to use them for fear of being absurd. Unquote. He had stumbled upon his medium, but only just, and it's doubtful if he even realized it. There was so much to learn, and that learning would cause him to question everything he believed to be true up to this point in his life. This self-tearing down and rebuilding is typical, although frustrating, for all who are self-educated. And setting off this quest for knowledge were several seemingly innocent comments he overheard. On the voyage over, a friend remarked that, quote, Christ's gospel was the last word in ethics, unquote. But this caused Winston's mind to ask itself, what exactly are ethics? Are they simply proper behavior and or patriotism? If that is so, then everyone's ethics would be different. So that can't be right. He would learn over time the broader implications of ethics in the context of proper behavior, but also why proper behavior was important. Then, as much as he had delved into history, he realized his knowledge was deep, but only in certain areas. He mused something ought to be done about this as well. He also heard someone say he used the Socratic method. Well, who was Socrates? And when Winston found out he had been dead for a very long time, what was it that this man said that made people still talk or argue about him? Clearly, it was time for him to put his hands on as many books as he could, as the things he was now interested in, namely everything, was simply not covered in the Queen's regulations. So he wrote to his mother and asked her to ship him a list of books. He didn't care or ask about how she was to pay for all this. Money meant little to Winston, except that he knew he was short on it. But just as when he was a schoolboy, he ignored that which did not interest him. His pay, when he received it from the army or his mother, was just handed over to his Indian butler. And Winston assumed and expected he would honestly deal with all his monetary issues. Naivete was still a close companion to this young Winston. As far as the books he requested of Jenny, it's probably just easier to list some of them. 
He wanted the 28 volumes of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Reads the Martyrdom of Man, a translation of the Republic of Plato, the 12 volumes of Macaulay's history, and his essays. He also wanted to read Darwin, Aristotle, but only his politics, Fawcett's political economy, William Lecky's European morals and rise and influence of rationalism, Pascal's provincial letters, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, Bartlett's familiar quotations, and many others. But it was his request that she send him all 100 volumes of the annual register, which comprised British public events, that shocked Jenny. However, she did manage to send the first 27. His first real attempt to tackle some of these books started in the fall of 1896, just short of his 22nd birthday. And not unexpectedly, though that's with hindsight, all this new information rushing through his established knowledge base caused a questioning of everything he thought he knew. Except, of course, his idea of keeping women out of politics and voting. According to this 21-year-old man, the woman of the house was represented by her husband. And besides, if she was given the vote, it was only a matter of time before she was running for parliament herself. No, Winston's real crisis was one of belief. He had grown up at Womb's Knee, learning her prayers, and later attended Sunday services at Harrow. When in Cuba and the danger near, he repeated the prayers he learned from Womb. But now, Reed, Gibbon, and Lecky were telling him that he had been fooled, that humans were on their own. This shaking of his core values caused Churchill to go through, quote, a violent and aggressive anti-religious phase, which, had it lasted, might have made me a nuisance, unquote. But then Winston, who was used to having his cake and eating it too, came upon his own compromise. He would keep to the practice of asking for divine help or guidance when the situation called for it, but then asked himself, why not enjoy both belief and reason? Or, as he put it, quote, a system of believing whatever I wanted to believe, while at the same time leaving reason to pursue unfettered whatever paths she was capable of treading, unquote. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Through all this reading, writing letters to friends and family, Winston bragged to his mother on March 31st, 1897, of hardly ever reading a novel, as if it was beneath his life-altering intellectual journey. But with one eye toward his financial situation and the other covering his future goals, he was in the process of writing one. It was called Savrola, A Political Romance. But this was Plan B. Plan A was still uppermost in his mind. He wanted to find a conflict and be paid to report on it. And the Greeks and Turks were providing him with his chance. 
In the spring of 1897, the Greeks were attempting to send reinforcements to Crete to deal with rebelling Turks. Britain, however, had joined other European countries in preventing the Greek troops from landing. Churchill was completely against this, but that was principle. This was about money and fame. He asked Jenny, who knew important people on all sides of the conflict, including the King of Greece, to obtain letters of introduction and to find a newspaper that would pay him 10 to 15 pounds per article. But when Jenny talked to her more knowledgeable friends, she was told this current episode would end quickly and not to waste her time. So she did not. Winston, not knowing this, felt Jenny wasn't helping because he wasn't there in person to twist her arm, something he didn't have a compunction doing. But then the fourth Hussars were given three months accumulated privilege leave. Most of his comrades didn't bother, but Churchill saw it as a godsend and headed home to twist in person. So on May 8, 1897, he set out. But again, the voyage was an ordeal to be endured. Before making it home, he heard the news that the Greeks sued for peace. Disappointed, he stopped at Naples, saw Pompeii, Rome, and Paris, and then finally reached the shores of Britain. He attended parties of the London season, but then saw an opportunity to advance his career outside of the military. Still hoping to find a conflict to report on, he nevertheless stopped by the office of Fitzroy Stewart, the secretary of the conservative central office and a distant cousin, and spoke of his wish to stand for parliament, as a conservative, of course. His cousin had the sad task of letting Winston know there were no vacant seats at the moment. But still, he had an idea that would help Winston later when he could stand for parliament. Stewart asked, and the request was confirmed, to have Winston address the Conservatives at Bath. This was to be his first political speech. Delivered at the Claverton Manor, now England's American Museum, Winston started his speech by saying that, as not much was happening in politics just now, this may be dull for the politicians, but it was for the people a relief. He went on to praise the conservative movement, attacked the liberals, and was cheered 41 times for this. Of course, much of it was probably sympathy cheering for the virgin speaker. His most ingratiating moment was when he told his fellow conservatives that their greatest contribution was teaching the people about the advantages of the empire, the nature of their constitution, and the importance of their fleet. Compared to the moving and eloquent speeches that came from his pen in the future, this was Winston finding his voice, but he ended well. He stated that the empire was not yet at its height, only to begin its decline, but was still, even today, seeking greater heights. And this had to be the commitment of England's sons. Indeed, it was the empire's job to bring, quote, peace, civilization, and good government to the uttermost ends of the earth. Unquote. As Winston was speaking, his prayers for another conflict were answered. But, as it was in northwest India, he would not only be reporting on it, but in the middle of it, which was even better. In northwest India, where the Himalayas trailed off, British policy was to build up Afghanistan as a buffer to protect the Raj 
as India was called, against Russia. This meant locating local tribes, letting them know that they were now subjects of a faraway queen, and hoped they tolerated the railroads, roads, signs, and outposts of these pale-skins. These tribes, like the Pathans, Swatis, Waziris, Afridis, Chichalis, and Gilgitis, were overwhelmed at first, and so compliant. But soon their confusion gave way to feelings of being violated, and before too long, they were retaliating. Their lives had consisted of simple interactions between each other, and they had no concern for any other peoples. This building tension, of course, flew in the face of British policy of protecting their crown jewel, India, from the largest country in the world, which still seemed to have an appetite for land. More specifically, British concerns rose over the Raj key frontier for Chitral that oversaw the passes leading into Afghanistan. A revolt by the Swati threatened the security of the British garrison that held the Malakan Pass, and equally important, a long wire rope jula, or swinging bridge, that allowed material to reach Chitral. It was made known that three brigades would be sent to secure the area, and the men there would be led by General Sir Bindon Blood. Churchill's excitement rose because, besides finally having an opportunity to shine, he had procured from Blood at one of the Jubilee parties a promise that the next time he went into action, Winston could come along. Churchill literally caught the next boat to India, which meant leaving behind his dog Pease, a whole mess of new books, and of course, old and newly acquired debts. After another unpleasant voyage, Winston heard from Blood that he would somehow be fitted into his entourage. But first, Churchill had to detour to Bangalore to get permission from his colonel. While her son was running around India, Jenny had obtained an agreement from the Daily Telegraph and the Indian newspaper Allahabad Pioneer to pay Winston for his articles on the punitive assignment. Turns out that Blood had no room on his staff for the young Hussar, but kept his promise by inviting Winston as a war correspondent. Ready to leave Bangalore, Winston bought his ticket and found out from the ticket babu that he would be traveling just over 2,000 miles, a five-day trip by train, just to get to the fighting. Fortunately, Winston had stuffed into his bag books from his bungalow, and would spend the next five days reading by lamplight. When Churchill arrived at the headquarters of Blood's Malacan field force, the general wasn't there, but the tired Winston was given a tent and some whiskey. He preferred wine or brandy, not liking what whiskey did to his stomach. But by the time Blood returned, five days later, Winston had developed a liking for the drink. Quote, once one got the knack of it, the very repulsion of the flavor developed an attraction of its own. I have never shrunk when occasion warranted from the main basic refreshment of the white officer in the East. Unquote. With the general back, plans were made. Winston knew full well, especially after what he saw in Cuba, that he could die in this conflict. But, quote, I have faith in my star. That is, that I am intended to do something in the world. If I am mistaken, 
what does it matter? Unquote. In other words, he would be dead, and his bad decision would not worry him. Before Winston set out with blood, leading 12,000 men and 4,000 animals over the rope bridge, the effects of the officers who had recently been killed in action were auctioned off, per Anglo-Indian custom. Churchill paid for two horses and a complete kit. He was now ready. Thus equipped, Blood, with his war correspondent by his side, set out. The Swatis had been chased up and down the valley, but now it was time to put them down once and for all. Winston's first report spoke of the tribesmen who hid in the hills with their long guns and took shots at the advancing British-led force. These men, called snipers, were very good shots and learned to pick off British soldiers or officers, as opposed to confronting them up close, unless, of course, they greatly outnumbered them. And separating the invaders into small parties and then attacking them with overwhelming numbers was the basis of Swati strategy. As the British-led forces and Swatis had been clashing over control of the area, the fighting had gotten personal. Swati tradition held that any captive enemy soldiers were to be tortured before being killed. In return, the British rampaged through their villages, drove off their cattle, and destroyed Swati crops, thus hoping to force them to leave the area. There was no honorable combat. No quarter was given or expected. As they headed out, Winston's constitution finally gave in to the brutal heat. He rode along with a 103 temperature, but knew the march had to be covered and that he could not slacken in his vigilance. It wasn't long before Blood lost men and officers to the snipers, and Winston soon found himself in charge of a company of the 31st Punjab Infantry. As they did not speak each other's language, Churchill learned the only two words he needed for this contest. Maro, kill, chalo, get on. But being who he was, he soon taught his men a useful word. Tally-ho! This exclamation, in a very short time, became useful. The men marched up the valley, clashed with the locals, and men and officers died at an alarming rate. Winston wrote to Jenny later that he did not feel fear, but wasn't driven by patriotism either. For him, in all honesty, this was merely a stepping stone to the House of Commons. Ambition drove the sickly Churchill on. He not only hoped and expected to live through this, he equally hoped and expected medals for this. September 16th was the hottest day, and the day of the heaviest fighting. Probably not a coincidence. The Swatis had learned heat was a great ally in fighting the British. The day before, September 15th, Blood ordered Brigadier Patrick Jeffries, who led his 2nd Brigade, to make for the Mamund Valley, really a cul-de-sac, and to clear off any resistors. Winston was allowed to follow Jeffries up and reached his camp 10 miles away that evening of the 15th. Quote, All night long, the bullets flew across the camp, but everyone now had good holes to lie in and the horses and mules were protected to a large extent. Unquote. At dawn, the force moved out with lancers in the lead. As they entered the valley, it widened, so Jeffries had his men break into three columns 
to cover more area. Winston was in the center column. Churchill and others had spotted tribesmen along the slopes to either side, but no shots rained down on them. The locals had learned long ago this was not the time to engage their enemy. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Near the end of the valley, the British officers spotted a large group of men among the hills. But again, the natives did not fire their guns. But as Jeffries was sent to engage the enemy, he had to tempt them out. So he sent the Lancers about 100 yards ahead of his column to take shots at the Swatties. It was 7.30 in the morning. This got the response Jeffries wanted as the hillmen returned fire. Next, Churchill and about 15 other men rode up next to the Lancers, dismounted, and started shooting as well. They were about 700 yards away from their targets. With the snipers so engaged, Jeffrey's infantry came up, broke into several smaller groups, and attacked nearby hills with other riflemen on top and a nearby village. Winston chose to follow this last group. By the time Winston's group reached the village, enemy fire had stopped. Contrary to common sense, this was not a good sign. Obviously, the Swatties were on the move, hoping to protect their homes. Winston looked back for Jeffries, but could not see him, or his men. They were all alone. What Winston was not experienced enough to know was that the other forces were still there, but couldn't be seen, due to the rising and falling terrain. Geography, besides the heat, was another Swatis ally. Winston looked around at the men with him, five officers and 85 Sikhs, and realized they were vastly outnumbered, judging from what he saw on the far slope a little while ago. Rushing to his mind was one of many Sandhurst lessons about dispersion of forces. Fortunately, just then, the company commander got word from the lieutenant colonel below that it was time to withdraw, as the larger force below the village was under heavy fire. Winston was all ready to leave with the other men when the superior officer said, quote, You stay here and cover our retirement till we take up a fresh position on that knoll below the village. Unquote. Clearly, this was not what any person who had plans for the future wanted to hear. Churchill and the other men anxiously waited for about 10 minutes and then readied themselves to leave. But just then, a large group of men dressed in white and blue came charging at them with swords, yelling, yee, 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 while other tribesmen fired from above. The swordsmen were a hundred yards away and coming fast. Winston took a rifle from a nearby Sikh and fired at the oncoming Pathans. The young Sikh, now rifleless, fed him cartridges. This continued for about five minutes as the charging men slowed their advance. Just then, word got back to Winston, and those not wounded, that the larger party was now on the knoll and could cover their retreat. As they rose to leave, shots rang out about them, and the man whose gun Winston took spun around, having been hit 
Five others quickly fell, dead or wounded. Churchill and the Sikhs gathered up the wounded, knowing that they would be tortured to death if left behind, and started down the hill. But then, about thirty Pathans, who had managed to get in close, charged them with their swords and guns. More Sikhs near the exhausted Winston fell. Churchill then watched as the adjutant also fell, clearly hit by a bullet. Though exhausted and still weakened from his high temperature, Churchill tried to run to the fallen officer. But a swordman got there first and killed the young man. With blood still on his sword, the killer turned to face Churchill. It was then that Winston remembered he had been the school fencing champion and released his cavalry saber. But then he saw that the oncoming tribesman wasn't the only one rushing towards him, hoping to have the honor of killing a British officer. Quote, I changed my mind about cold steel. I fired nine shots from my revolver, unquote, and climbed down the hill as fast as he could, not stopping until he reached the relative safety of the knoll. Though he was now with a larger group of men with more guns, they weren't out of this yet. Morale and discipline had completely broken down. The infantry were firing their rifles in all directions. The wounded were not being gathered and protected, and thus being butchered within eyesight of their comrades. Still, the force managed to move further down the hill, with the enemy literally right behind them. They reached the battalion on the valley floor, but were still vastly outnumbered and surrounded. The lieutenant colonel then yelled at the men, and their training took over. He lined them up, two deep, shoulder by shoulder, all the while still being fired upon by the tribesmen. Then the other British officers moved closer and took control of their men, yelling, quote, Volley firing, ready, present, fire! Unquote. The closest sword-wielding tribesmen fell, but still many, many more were closing in. The lieutenant colonel told Churchill that reinforcements were nearby to go and get them. Winston pictured himself being the only survivor from this expedition, and that it may look like as if he ran away. So, thinking of his career, he asked the lieutenant colonel to put the request for assistance in writing. The senior officer looked at the subaltern as if he had lost his mind. But Winston had his future to think of. Just then, they all heard a bugler sounding the charge. Help was on the way. But this wasn't over. Now that the lieutenant colonel had more men, he decided to go on the offensive. Winston was truly seeing the ugly side of war. No mercy. And you didn't stop until your enemy was underfoot or underground. They moved out and retook the knoll, collected the wounded, though all had been killed by now, and recovered the adjutant's body. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. Only then did they fall back, because honor was satisfied. They found out the next day that every one of their 12,000 men were attacked and casualties were high. Even Sir Bidden Blood suffered from a head wound as his men were forced to fight hand to hand. The general then ordered that the entire valley be put to the torch. So his men, with Winston in tow, reduced any and all structures in the valley. But when they attacked a village near the mountain walls, the tribesmen came down screaming and offered resistance. According to Churchill, quote, We lost for every village 
two or three British officers, and 15 to 20 native soldiers. Whether it was worth it, I cannot tell. At any rate, at the end of a fortnight, the valley was a desert. Unquote. But Churchill's adventure with Sir Bidden Blood was not over. He would not return to his regiment until October, after more hair-raising clashes with the fierce tribesmen. But all this work, work for getting him into Parliament, was almost undone by his correspondence. Winston was just a little too open with his opinions about what was happening between soldiers of the Empire and the locals trying to resist. Fortunately, Jenny, back at home, saved his future and his reputation through her contacts. Winston had wanted to get known. Well, now he was. To his brother Jack, he wrote, quote, Being in so many ways a coward, particularly at school, there is no ambition I cherish so keenly as to gain a reputation of personal courage. Unquote. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Uh, before I let you go, I just wanted to thank a couple people. Uh, I'd like to thank Carolyn O. from Alfington, Australia, for her donation. Thank you very much, Caroline. Uh, and I'd like to say hi and thank you to the latest members, um, Sunrise L., Larry N. from Long Beach, California, Bradley S., and uh, Sarah M. from Denver, Colorado. So thank you very much. Like I said, I will try to get out one more episode before we head to the beach. Um, and for those of you who are not members, there are 15 membership episodes waiting. If you wanted to sign up, you could do that through the uh, website, and then I'll just send you the username and password. So hopefully 15 episodes would keep you busy uh, while I'm gone. And on a side note, I'm still not sure what I'm going to do for my 100th episode. Not sure if Laszlo will be able to fly to this side of the country and come see me. Maybe I'll do a whole bunch of uh, question and answer stuff or get some other podcasters to come on and do a group chat. If anyone wanted to uh, send me some questions between now and the 100th episode, I can gather them all up and answer them then. So the 100th episode celebration just might be a potpourri of a lot of different things. We'll see how it, how it turns out. So like I said, I will try very hard to get one more out. But if not, I hope you all have a great beginning to your fall. And I will see you as soon as I can with episode 86. Tally-ho, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.